In the year 117, a new emperor rose to power in the Roman Empire, and his name was Caesar Hadrian. And Hadrian was a little bit concerned and a little curious about this Roman cult that had uh, really swept across the Roman Empire. And so he sent a spy in, by the, a man by the name of, uh, see if I can say this right, Aristides. We're just going to pretend that's right, all right? He sent them in among the followers of the way, which would be what we call Christianity. He sent them in, he sent Aristides in, and Aristides came back, and you can actually look this up. Um, he, he gave what is called the Apology of Aristides, which is a report back to Caesar Hadrian. And here are some of the things that he said. He says, the Christians, they love one another. He who has gives to him who has not without boasting. And when they see a stranger, they take him into their own homes and rejoice over him as a very brother. And if there is any among them that is poor and in need, and they have no spare food, they fast two or three days in order to supply to the needy their lack of food. Such, O king, is their manner of life. And verily, this is a new people, and there is something divine in the midst of them. What a report. He's right. This is a new people, and it's because there is the divine, the Spirit of God in the midst of them. This is what Jesus has come to create, a new humanity. And this is what we have been studying as Jesus is unpacking through what we call the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. What does it mean for us to live as part of this new humanity? And this, ser- this sermon that Jesus is doing, this teaching, is not primarily something for you to do. But first, it's who we are asking God to make us into. We're asking God, make us into a people who mourn over our sin and who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Make us a people who delight in your law and obey it from a place of joy because we love you. Make us a people who practice our righteousness, whether it's giving or fasting or prayer or any expression of the faith, not as a way to gain public approval, but because we love Christ and we want to grow in intimacy with him. Make us a people who use our material things and view them in a heavenly way, meaning that we submit all we have to God for his kingdom to bless others. And then if you were here last week, actually, I should say it this way. If you were not here last week, wow, you missed a great morning. You really need to go online to the website Uh, Chelton's website or our podcast and listen, we had our brother Ed Welsh come last week and talk to us about anxiety and what perfect timing to talk about that topic, right? I mean, not only do we all have our individual things in our own lives that we feel anxious about and are fearful about, and that is just a wide variety of things, but our whole world right now is in a state of anxiety, aren't we? Even this area through many things, but even in particular, this coronavirus, right? I want to encourage us to think in, a, in, in two specific ways when it comes to maybe this virus, maybe it's bigger than this, maybe it's just the flu or any sickness in general. And the first is that we're called to be wise, right? Which means it's really good idea to listen to the CDC. It's really good thing to wash your hands on a regular basis, to use hand sanitizer like I'm sure some of you probably already have. And if you're sick, 
please stay home. Love the rest of the church family, and you don't need to come. It's okay. If your kids are sick, same thing. Stay home. It's okay. If you don't want to hug or shake hands, that might be wise. A lot of fist bumps or elbow taps. I don't know. Find a way to, to greet and express your love to someone else. We'll, we understand as a church family. It's a way we can love one another. So we want to be wise, and on the other hand, we will not be afraid. We will not be afraid. Even as we were reminded last week, we have a God who holds tomorrow, and anxiety and panic will not add a single moment to our lives. We cannot, by worrying, prevent yourself from, from getting any sort of illness or disease. And in fact, I see this potential of, of this sickness and even the reality of this particular virus around the world as an incredible opportunity for the church to rise up and to love our neighbor. In fact, I've read several stories this past week of how the church in China is doing just that, and it's been amazing. How they have been embodying the presence of their Savior to those even who are in quarantine by bringing food and delivering medicine to those who are ill. In fact, this is what the church has always done. We've always followed the path of our Savior, who was not afraid to be with those who were ill and hurting. He moved towards the broken, towards the leper and the sick. And this you could trace throughout all of human history, that at the most significant times of plague and sickness, while everyone else seems to be running away from those who are ill in effort to save themselves, oftentimes leaving those who are sick to die, it's always been the Christians who have moved in. You could trace this from the Roman Empire, that's true. You could look and trace this into the bubonic, the bubonic plague in the 1600s, cholera, AIDS, Ebola, any sickness, the church is the one who moves in because we have nothing to be afraid of. My favorite band has a line in the song that says, you and I, we are so alive that even if they kill us, we will never die. We have nothing to be afraid of. So be wise, but don't be afraid. And when you feel fear and anxiety rise, those are moments to turn to our Savior again and say, Jesus, I believe you. Help my unbelief. My faith is weak. And actually, I want to do that for us right now. Let's, let's take a moment and just turn to our Savior before we open his word this morning. Father, we do come on behalf of those who are ill this morning. Whether that's from the coronavirus around the world, whether that is from the flu or a cold, or from those who are in a struggle against cancer or some other disease, Lord, I ask that you would heal them, that you would lead and guide scientists to, to continue to, to find vaccines and medication to treat these various illnesses. Give wisdom to our world leaders as they seek to, to provide for and bring and protect the public's health. And Lord, help us not to be afraid. We are fearful. There's a lot of big, scary things in this world, but you are bigger than all of that. So give us wisdom as to how to respond in our own lives. And Lord, give us courage that in the face of fear and sickness or anything else that comes, may we see those moments as opportunities to step in and love in the face of fear, to love our neighbor as ourself. And Father, as we turn to your words this morning, I pray that you would by your spirit take your word and transform us to be like your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Matthew chapter 7 is where we will be this morning. So if you have your bulletin or your copy of the scriptures, I invite you to turn there with me as we tackle a, uh, an interesting and complicated and, and difficult subject here. 
Matthew chapter 7, hear the word of the Lord. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured against you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give to dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. This is the word of the Lord this morning. Well, this passage has one of the most popular phrases that Jesus ever speaks, at least popular in our day. It's become kind of a a leading mantra for our society. Don't judge. It's popular everywhere. You hear it in music. You hear it in movies. You see it all over social media, in regular everyday conversations. In studying this passage, I came to realize how difficult it is to understand what Jesus is saying because language means different things. The same word can mean different things depending on the context, right? And the same is the case, this is true here of this idea of judging. To judge means different things, and the Bible uses it in several different ways. One would be in the judicial sense, right? To render a verdict in a criminal or civil case. That's kind of a a common sense understanding of what it means to judge. It also uses it in a very positive way, that you are called to be wise, to use discernment, to judge rightly between right and wrong, measuring all of that against God's word and by his spirit, Asking for wisdom and using discernment. This might, you want, may want to call this a judgment call, making a judgment call. So in a sense, we're called to judge, and then in another way, it's used in a negative sense, where we're called, like this passage, not to be judgmental, not to pass judgment, not to be judgmental in our approach towards others. This pushes in on the motives, on the heart issue, the attitude with which we approach someone else. And this is what this whole sermon has been doing. Jesus has been pushing in through these entire, this entire sermon so far is to say, look below the surface. He said, I've come to renew your heart. And so he's addressing things that are the heart issue. And so in this context, this is what Jesus is talking about. He's saying that the new humanity, that those who have been shown mercy by Christ, now they have the freedom from the need to be judgmental. Well, what does it mean to have a judgmental attitude? It's probably a little easier to show you what I mean than to just tell you and describe it. This past Sunday afternoon, uh, my, our two kids were invited to a birthday party. And so they went to the birthday party, and so Jolie and I had a few hours together. So naturally, we went grocery shopping, because that's what you do, I guess. So as we're walking through the aisles at Aldi, a man comes next to us with his shopping cart, and his two kids are in the shopping cart. And he's clearly frustrated with them. He's very frustrated. And he actually start, he starts to scold and reprimand his kids, but not in the, in the private way, in the, hey, whole store, attention, please. You know what I'm saying? Where the whole store could hear that he was upset with his kids and everybody could hear exactly what was going on. Kind of shaming his children. And in that moment, what happened in my heart went far beyond a judgment call. It went far beyond a, hey, well, that might not be the wisest way to uh, deal with your children. I judged the man, and I condemned him instantly in my heart. Before I knew him, before I had any context, immediately there was this reaction in my heart that said, what a terrible dad. 
I mean, at least compared to me. What, what's he doing? He might not even play with his kids at home. And honestly, like, my mind just went to all these terrible places. Just like that. Having a judgmental attitude is where we look down on someone else with an attitude of superiority where there is no love, where we're quick to criticize and condemn someone else. And the key to this is that we feel self-righteous by comparing ourselves to them. In this judgmental attitude, in this moment, if you really dig under it, what's happening is you're pretending and acting as God, setting the standard for everyone else and being in yourself the judge, jury, and executioner in that moment. God's role is judge, and you're presuming upon that position. We apply a standard to others that we don't want applied to ourselves, and I think we all know what that's right, like, like, right, I'm sorry. You know what that's like. We all have areas where we're tempted to be judgmental of others, and it happens, it seems like almost every area where there is a difference between us and someone else is an opportunity to be judgmental. It happens on our outward appearances, Right? It's amazing how we, we compare and are, can be very critical and judgmental of people in either direction of us. So if someone's messier than us, well, they're a slob. But if they're neater than us, they're a neat freak. Someone who's poor, who, who at least appears to be more poor than we are, well, somehow they're lesser in our minds. But those who appear to be richer, well, they're greedy or snobbish. We condemn people who eat more than us. We condemn people who eat less than us. We condemn people of different ethnic cultures who look different or have an accent or speak a different language or come from a different culture which holds different values. We have subtle prejudices and stereotypes that we operate under. And in every one of these cases of the outward experience, what's going on is that there is one common standard by which we judge everyone else, and that is us. I am the standard by which I judge you on. To paraphrase Romans 3.23, for all fall short of my glory, all fall short of my standard. If you are the standard by which you judge everyone else, of course they're going to fail. And of course you need to be condemned. You need to condemn them. This happens too in other areas, in our areas of preference. You see, there are things that God tells us what to do, but doesn't tell us exactly how to flesh that out, how to live that out in all the details. He actually leaves room for us to have differences of opinion, which requires us to use wisdom and to grow in wisdom. For example, parents, we're called to raise our children to know and to love Christ, but we're not told exactly how to do that in all the detailed ways. So is that done by homeschooling, Christian school, or public school? What about spanking? What about letting your kids cry it out when they're young? What about letting kids sleep in your bed? What about how many activities you're involved in? All of these things are places where we can differ an opinion on. But it's so incredibly easy. Every one of those things I just said are things that we as parents are judgmental of each other on. What about as citizens of America? We're called to be invested in for the good of our country. But no matter how passionate you are, there is not one political party that you're to affiliate with. In fact, there actually should be things about every political party that make you uncomfortable because of your loyalty to King Jesus. 
In Romans 14, you can read it later if you'd like, the Apostle Paul is talking about some areas where people have different convictions and different opinions on. There is space for these things. You all have opinions, and there's nothing wrong with those. But Romans 14, 12 says, whatever you believe about these things, these types of things, keep between yourself and God, which doesn't mean you don't talk about them. It means that you recognize that your preferences and your opinions are just that. And it's incredibly easy for us to equate our opinions with truth. And it's just as easy for us to condemn or have a judgmental attitude towards those who differ from you on these areas or many others. And I think this is what Jesus is talking about in this, in this passage. Don't judge others or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So recognize that if you hold someone else to some standard that is your personal preference or opinion, and you condemn them, if they turn and use that same measure against you, what are you? You're condemned. And we're just continuing this cycle of condemnation and criticizing one another and being judgmental towards one another. In fact, if you're really honest, most likely you condemn yourself in that very moment. Because you're not consistent with your own standards. Last Sunday, when I stood there and instantly felt judgmental attitude for this man that I did not know, it was like the Lord gave me a glance into a mirror. Here was a dad with two little kids, a little boy and a little girl, almost the same age as mine. And I've done that exact same thing as recent as yesterday. That's what happens when mom goes on a tapestry retreat, right? <laughs> as, as, as recent as yesterday, where you just get frustrated and you just want compliance and so you do whatever it takes as a parent to just, I don't care if it's embarrassed, manipulate, we do whatever we can just to get some compliance and obedience in that moment. And we sacrifice relationship with our kids. I shouldn't say we, I have done this. Where I sacrifice real relationship just to get a moment of peace. And so by the very standard that I judged this other man, I condemned myself. And we all do that. This one was just really obvious. It was like I was looking in a mirror. Other times we're judgmental of others because of their sin. And again, we do this as a way to feel better about ourselves. We look at people and we, we, we condemn them for their area of sin in a way to feel better about ourselves, where at least I don't struggle in that area, and usually whatever that area is, some more public sin, maybe some sexual sin tends to be a hot button for us. And we use that as a means to avoid our own respectable sins. If I can steal a title from a book by a man named Jerry Bridges, and the whole point of his book is there is no such thing as respectable sins. Well, at least I'm not like so-and-so who had an affair, but we go home and look at porn. At least I'm not addicted to drugs, but I need my coffee in the morning. We condemn people who live wasteful lives of extravagance, but at home behind closed doors, we are envious and jealous. Do you see the contradiction in all this? You see how silly this is? We're selective about our own sin. We want justice for someone else, but mercy for us. 
Martin Luther nails it on the head when he says, be careful not to measure your holiness by other people's sins. It's the heart of being judgmental. And why? Why is that so impulsive for us? Why is that so easy for us to go there? The most common answer as to why we feel judgmental is because we do it to make ourselves feel a little better by comparing to someone else. But if you have to do something in order to make yourself feel a little better, better, what does that show you about your honest assessment of yourself? If you have to put someone else down and judge them in order to feel good about yourself, that shows you don't feel very good about yourself on your own. Because the reality is if the light is shown on you, if you were exposed, then you know that deep inside there are plenty of things that require judgment from others. And so I work really hard to keep the attention on you, on your sin, on differences that I don't like, so then I don't have to think about myself. I don't think about my sin, so I keep the attention on you as a way to protect myself. It's because we feel ashamed And we try by comparison to feel a little better. But the reality is there is no amount of judging someone else, no amount of condemning someone else that will ever alleviate shame in your own life. You know that you stand beyond a shadow of a doubt, guilty before God, deserving of judgment. And this is what the psalmist in Psalm 130 understands. And he says, Lord, if you kept a record of sins, who could stand? Who would stand with confidence before you? The implied answer, nobody. The problem is not out there with them. The problem is me, which is why there is such good hope in the very next verse. Psalmist goes on, he says, but with you there is forgiveness of sins so that we can with reverence serve you. This is where the gospel is such hugely incredible news for us. It's good news that breaks the cycle of judgment and takes away the need to be judgmental and to condemn other people. Because God himself, who is the judge, who has the right and the responsibility to judge, came to this earth and Jesus said, I came not to judge this world, but to save it. And Jesus, who did absolutely nothing wrong, had no sin, had no shame, nothing to be ashamed of, had nothing to be judged for, willingly took on himself your sin and bore in himself the judgment that you and I deserve so that by his wounds we could be healed. So that by him being judged and condemned, you and I are justified and forgiven. Listen to the way that Colossians, we sang songs that echo this. Colossians 2, 13 to 15. When you were dead in your sins, Christ made you alive and he took what stood against you what stood against you that required your judgment. He took that and he nailed it to the cross. And at his resurrection, he disarmed and embarrassed anything that would stand against you to condemn you. There is nothing to condemn you any longer. There is not an ounce of judgment left for you. Which means that if your sin has been forgiven... Your shame has been removed. You have nothing to be afraid of. You have been justified and declared righteous by the judge. At the cross, mercy triumphs over judgment. 
And if there is no condemnation for you who are in Christ, and you are being transformed by his spirit to look more like him, to be more like him, to think, to act, to love like Jesus, then why would you and I feel the need to run around condemning other people? It doesn't make any sense. For those who have received mercy, the only natural response is to show mercy. Later on this afternoon, you can go to Matthew 18 and read a story about a servant who has shown mercy but fails to show it to someone else, and it's jarring. It doesn't make any sense. And if Jesus came into this world not to judge it, but to save it, then what business do we of his people have in judging others? You see, in the gospel, you are now free to love. You are free to be merciful. You're free to not worry about yourself by comparison to others, or even by your own heart, even by the condemnation you can hear and feel in your own spirit. You see, God is judge, and you and I can be free from pretending that we have to take his job. Francis Schaeffer once said, and I love it, he says, if you preach judgment without tears, you don't have Jesus' spirit. Here's, what, here, here's where I think he's understanding that from. In the book of 2 Peter, God is reassuring his people that he will one day come to judge the world. He's reassuring them that wickedness and evil will not have last word. And everyone around is looking, sheesh, God, this has taken forever. You're pretty slow at this whole coming back thing. And 2 Peter 3.9 says that the Lord is not slow about keeping his promise, his promise to return and to judge and to make things right, the way that some understand slowness. But instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. You see, God's slowness to judge is actually his patience. It's an invitation for you to repent, to turn to Christ for the forgiveness of sins, And if this is the heart of our God, that he is quick to show mercy and slow to judge, then that becomes who we are as well. And I think this is where Jesus goes next. Matthew chapter 7, verses 3 to 5, he says, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. See, Jesus condemns this hypocritical, judgmental attitude where we are quick to inspect others' lives but really hesitant to inspect our own with no humility. You see, in in this world, we have this idea that the opposite of being judgmental is to be tolerant. That's kind of how most people will use that phrase, don't judge me. It's basically them saying, keep your opinions to yourself, especially if it's negative. Don't tell me that I'm right or wrong. This is how it's most commonly used. The problem is that's actually not what Jesus says. That's not what Scripture teaches. In this passage and all throughout Scripture, the command is clear that as brothers and sisters in Christ, we actually have a responsibility to speak into one another's lives. Let me be really clear, though. That is within this church family. In 1 Corinthians 5.12, Paul says, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? The answer is none. 
You are relieved of the pressure of judging anyone outside this church. You're welcome. But he continues to say, are you not to judge those inside the church? God will judge those outside. You see, we actually have a responsibility if we see a brother or sister in Christ whom we are in fellowship with walking in sin, we have a responsibility to come to them, to confront them about that, and to graciously and humbly speak to them and call them to live in line with the gospel. Live in light of the salvation that they have received which means that the opposite of being judgmental is not being tolerant. The opposite of being judgmental is showing mercy. This is what Jesus is saying. He says, before you go and confront someone about the sin in their lives, first, get the plank out of your own eye. Now, what does this mean? Does this mean that you have to be perfect and sinless before you address anyone else? Clearly not, because no one would talk to anyone else in that case, right? But it does mean that you first examine yourself and you become aware of your own sin. You see, being hypocritical in your judgmental attitude is when you feel better confronting someone else out about their sin. But once you have taken a second to become aware of your own sin in your own life and your need for mercy, then there is no space for arrogance or self-righteousness. Because in that moment, we're not comparing ourselves to someone else. We're comparing ourselves to the law of God. A man named Sinclair Ferguson said it this way. He says, the heart that has tasted the Lord's grace and forgiveness will always be restrained in its judgment of others. It has seen itself deserving judgment and condemnation before the Lord, and yet... Instead of experiencing his burning anger, has tasted his infinite mercy. Which means that you and I will never, ever in our entire lives outgrow the need for the gospel. The need to be reminded to preach the gospel to ourselves and to one another and to, be re to rehearse the story that we've been rehearsing all morning. To remember the mercy that we have received from God. You see, a forgetful heart breeds a judgmental spirit. But a heart that regularly remembers and soaks in the mercy of God becomes one that cannot help but show mercy to others. Which means that any conversation you have about someone else's sin is just dripping with love, with humility, with compassion, with mercy. It comes with the attitude of, hey, I love you enough to help you. Because tomorrow, you're going to have to help me. And then we come to verse 6, and we start talking about pigs and dogs. <laughs> and it's like, what is Jesus doing here? It almost feels like it doesn't quite fit. He says, do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them underfoot and turn and tear you to pieces. The very first time I read this, I just assumed it was a quote from the book of Proverbs, so I tried to find it, but it's not. But it is a proverb. It's very Proverbs-like, isn't it? And I think Jesus is doing that on purpose. You see, in the book of Proverbs is two of my favorite verses. Proverbs 26, verse 4 says this. It says, do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you yourself will be just like him. Then the very next verse says this. Answer a fool according to his folly, or he will be wise in his own eyes. 
Which is it? What's, what's going on here? Which is it? Do I answer or do I not answer? It seems like it's contradictory, except the point of Proverbs is not that you would now have a manual with all the answers in it. But the point of Proverbs is to actually show you the need for wisdom. You need wisdom. And throughout the whole book of Proverbs, wisdom is personified as this woman who walks with you through all of life and is able to lead you and guide you and to direct you in what is right and wrong in each in every moment. How to live wisely. Which means that as you walk with wisdom and lean on and depend and grow in wisdom, you'll know in each moment whether you're to answer a fool according to his folly or not answer a fool according to his folly. How do I know? Wisdom will lead you. And then 1 Corinthians says that Jesus Christ has become wisdom to us from God. The ultimate personification of wisdom is Jesus. And Jesus, at his ascension, gives you his spirit, which means that no matter where you go, wisdom goes with you which is really, really good news for me. Because as I read this passage, I have a ton of questions. Here's some of them. How do I tell the difference between my personal preference and my opinion and God's law? It's easy to confuse those. Well, how will I know? How do I know if I'm going to be, how do I know if in my heart I'm being judgmental towards someone else? How do I talk to someone who I disagree with but not be judgmental in that conversation? When am I able, at what point am I able to talk to a brother or sister about their sin? When have I removed the plank from my own eye? When have I examined myself enough to have a conversation with someone? How do I know what to say or how to say it or when the best time is to say it? And like I think this last verse about the pigs and the dogs is trying to say, when am I called to be persistent in confronting my brother or sister? And when am I to actually back off because it's like throwing pearls in front of a pig? It's useless. How do I know when to do all that? Wisdom will guide you. Christ has given you his spirit who will be with you and who will lead you into all these things. You see, Jesus is preaching this entire Sermon on the Mount. You could reread the whole thing through this lens. You cannot be a part of this new humanity outside of dependence on Jesus. He is putting you in a place where you can't walk away from him, but all you do is find yourself in front of him going, Jesus, I need you. I don't know how to do this. I don't know what this looks like. Please lead me. Please guide me. Help me. Because the point of life is not that we would be independent of Christ, but that we would grow in dependence on him. And the good news is he has promised to never leave you. And he will lead you and guide you by his spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So be reminded again this morning, the good news is that you are not God. You are not the standard. You are actually relieved of your feeling the need to judge anyone else. In fact, you're relieved of even being judged yourself by Christ, which means you have nothing to prove you have no need any longer to condemn someone else. You're free. Let's pray. Lord, you are a compassionate and gracious God. 
You are slow to anger. You're rich and overflowing in love. And I praise you that you are a merciful judge. That you have not dealt with me in the way that I deserve, but you have forgiven me and showed me grace. And Lord, I just want to confess as an individual, me, as a church, as Chelton, as the church at large, I want to confess our sin of being judgmental, especially of those who are outside the church. Lord, there are entire communities, whether it's the gay community, whether it's those who are addicted to drugs, whether it's those who have had abortions, the list could go on and on of groups of people and individuals with stories who have felt judgment and condemnation from us as a church. Oh, Lord, it breaks my heart. And yet, Jesus, you have said that you are faithful and just, that if we confess our sins, if we turn to you, that you will forgive them, that it is actually justice has already been served. And you have taken the judgment. So we come to you, not with our heads held down, not with our heads hung in shame, but we come to you with our arms out saying, Jesus, take us and change us. Make us a people who are free of ourselves, free of the need to judge other people, free to show mercy and to be as generous as you are. Even from those who are different than us. Make us a people who are slow to judge, but quick to show mercy. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.